Number 5. God's Mission, 4th Quarter, 2023 John Pauline Lord Jesus, we ask for your Spirit to guide us as we studied today. May we have a passion for you, God, and a desire to tell others of your love and salvation. There are so many in this world that don't know you, Lord, and it's actually our privilege to share that good news with those who don't know you. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us, for the joy of sharing and giving the gospel to others. Thank you, Lord, for your many blessings. And this I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So this is the fifth in a series of studies on mission. And the title of this one is Excuses to Avoid Mission. So I guess the focus is ways in which we tend to duck mission when in our hearts, perhaps we know we should do more of it. This could be one of those shaming type lessons, but I think the author did a good job of focusing on one biblical passage, actually a biblical book, of perhaps the most well-known excuse maker. And so we get to plunge deep into Jonah's life, and the lessons learned can be caught more than taught, and that I think was well done. So let's go to our handout and go to number one. And in the handout, it says, the lesson this week zeroes in on a single biblical example of someone avoiding mission, the story of Jonah. Since Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the story of Jonah is set in the context of that nation's interactions with Old Testament Israel. And so what do the following texts tell us about the background to the story of Jonah? All right, so we're going to go outside the book of Jonah at first and just look at a few passages that mention Assyria and or Nineveh uh, to give us a bit of a background of how Jonah might have looked at Assyria and how that might have been part of his calculations when he decided to head west instead of east. So we'll start with Nahum chapter 1 and verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. All right, so this entire book is about Nineveh. So Nahum is kind of a parallel book to Jonah. And so it gives a description of Nineveh without mentioning it in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. City of bloodshed, utterly deceitful, full of booty, no end to the plunder. The crack of whip and rumble of wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, piles of dead, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. All right. So you see here a nation that has made its way in blood, in oppression, in brutality, and in deception. And in many ways, Assyria is a poster child for Satan's government in this world. Satan is known for two things in particular, lies and force. He's a murderer from the beginning and a liar from the beginning. And Assyria is a perfect match, I think, for Satan. It's where he had perhaps more control than in most parts of the world through history. So let's go to 2 Kings. And there's a couple of passages there which also talk about Assyria, 2 Kings 17 and verses 5 and 6. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. For three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He carried the Israelites away to Assyria. He placed them in Hala, on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. All right. One thing to keep in mind is that Israel, after the time of Solomon, split into two nations that we tend to call northern Israel and southern Israel, or Israel and Judah, uh, Judah being the prominent tribe in the southern part. So the nation split, and the Assyrians came, and they destroyed that northern kingdom and took many of its inhabitants uh, captive. So that's part of the history in people's minds, biblical times, when they're thinking of Assyria. These are the bad guys who just brazenly take territory from others at the cost of many lives, 
and much hardship and brutality. Another one is 2 Kings 19 and verses 32 through 37. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, shoot an arrow there, come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. That very night, the angel of the Lord set out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the morning dawned, they were all dead bodies. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria left, went home, and lived at Nineveh. As he was worshiping in the house of his god Nishrach, his sons Adramelech and Sharezer killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. His son Esar Haddon succeeded him. All right, so that's a bit of the background then to Jonah and this story. Assyria is clearly one of those bad actors in ancient history. And so Jonah, any concerns Jonah would have had about benefiting the Assyrians or putting himself in the hands of the Assyrians are quite understandable. And one of the big reasons for refusing mission, of course, is fear. Fear of what they will do to us. Fear maybe that they will laugh at us or do something even worse. So with that in mind, we go to Jonah. One more thing, let me say before we do that. It mentions Sennacherib, and archaeologically, we are aware that Sennacherib built a palace in Nineveh. Nineveh was an amazing city for its time. It was huge. Jonah itself mentions 120,000 inhabitants, which would be very large. Jerusalem at that time is probably about the size of 1,500 or so. So Nineveh is 100 times larger than Jerusalem. The palace of Sennacherib was 1,280,000 square feet. For those who prefer that, it's 150,000 square meters. In other words, the first floor of Sennacherib's home was the size of about 1,000 normal single-family residences today. That is an empire that had enriched itself powerfully over many, many others. So with that in mind, God does something really strange, at least from Jonah's perspective, and says, go to Nineveh and preach. So let's read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Captain came and said to him, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. 
for I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. All right. The question I put into the handout is what picture of God did the sailors in Jonah's story have? As you go through this passage, how do they view God? I mean, clearly they are religious people. They're very concerned about what is happening. They believe that God, a God, or some gods can make a difference in this regard. So before we answer that question, I just want to go through six basic views of God. All right. The first view is called naturalism. And with naturalism, there is no God. Naturalism means everything happens according to nature, cause and effect. All right. So there's no God, and therefore there's really no such thing as evil because there's no moral standard. So everything is simply the way it is. The second view of God is pantheism, and that's the idea that everything is God. God is in the trees, God is in the plants, God is in the rocks, he's in the stars, etc. He fills the whole universe. In other words, the universe and God are the same thing. God is not a person as such, but more of a force that kind of ties everything together. And that may be a term you're familiar with in today's world. A third view of God is deism. And deism is different from the first two in that there is a God and that God is a person. That God is distinct from the universe and is the creator. But for deism, God is relatively unengaged with the world. He kind of, like a watchmaker, sets it going and then stands back and says, okay, it's your responsibility from here on. So deism is at one extreme of human freedom and God really not being engaged with life on this earth. The opposite is deterministic theism, and that is a God who controls everything, micromanages every detail that happens in our lives. Uh, The fifth view of God is appeasement theism, and that's that there is a God, and he is engaged in this world, but he's really disappointed in us. He's really angry And we have to bring him chocolates and flowers every so often just to keep him from going out of control. And then finally, there's benevolent theism. And that is that God is both great and good. And that evil can be explained from a different place than that it was caused by God. So anyway, six views of God. Naturalism and pantheism. God is not a person or doesn't exist. Deism and deterministic theism, either, yeah, there is a God, but he has nothing to do with us, or there is a God and he micromanages everything. Appeasement theism is an angry God, and benevolent is a good and kind God. So, in the light of those options, where do you think the sailors are? All right, Lou, go ahead. Well, I think that they believed that God was a God of power. So that might be that appeasement kind of God that you describe, because they wanted to know what was the problem and how to fix it. How can we appease God or whatever? I don't know what they would fall under, but I would guess that. But I do believe that they thought he was all powerful and that they needed to do something to appease him to fix it. Is that where you would put them? Okay. I think that's a reasonable deduction from this passage, that they're certainly concerned that this God is angry with them, and they need to do something to get God to calm this storm. Henry? I think that this is a complex question, because I love your explanation about the six different positions, but I don't take them as definitions or positions about God, but about deism. Because when we try to equate deism with God, Jehovah, then we have multiple different uh, differences in there. So in this case, it's difficult to assume that these sailors were thinking about Jehovah, which is the benevolent or sometimes harsh, arbitrary kind of deity that comes into the definitions that you gave about the the six different types of deism that exists. So they actually are talking about Elohim. They are not talking about Jehovah. And they are actually talking in plural, that every one of them is reaching out to their God, their individual gods. It is a plurality of gods in there. So they are not actually having a picture of God, but a picture of their own 
understanding of deism. And so that's why I see that it's difficult to know exactly because there is probably a gamut of them. We don't even know. And it is Jonah, the one that brings one of these definitions and says, well, the one that I believe, the one that I fear is the creator of heaven and the sea which makes it even more than a fearing because now they know that this is probably the one that is in charge of the problem that they are facing. Yeah, just a technical point. The term I think you meant, Henry, is theism. Theism is how a person looks at God. Deism is one of the six. The view that God is a person, but not actively engaged with us. It's just a minor point. Appreciate your comments. I think the biblical view, Christians would argue the biblical view is benevolent theism, that God is very, very powerful, but it is a good and kind exercise of power, and that evil is determined for other reasons than that God was the one who created it. I would point out in verse 6, it's interesting, the captain comes to Jonah and says, get up, call on your God, maybe he will take notice of us. So that, it seems to me, is a bit more the deistic view, that God is at a distance, that God is not engaged in our lives and needs to be called on, needs to be awakened, if you will. So on the other hand, in verse 7, there's the idea of the vindictive God, where it says the sailor said to come, let's cast lights, find out who's to blame for this calamity. And if we can figure out who's to blame and we can take it out on them, then perhaps the God will be good to us. Verse 11, it says, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked, what shall we do to make the sea calm for us? So they have, I think, this idea of an appeasement, theism, etc. It's interesting that the ancients tended to think of the sea as the abode of demons, evil deities, if you will. Each of the nations had its own god, and those gods were perhaps a bit more positive, but the sea was the abode of demons. And it's interesting that Jonah is running away from the devil he knows, Assyria, and running into the hands of the devils that he does not know. So when you seek to flee from responsibility, you may be going from one demon to another. All right, Sean. A couple of observations from the text. Whoever they worshipped, they seem to allow for other people to worship something or somebody else. The text indicates in verse 6, get up, call on your God. So I'm thinking that they were okay with allowing other people to have another God. So whoever they worshipped, it was okay in their worship to allow other people to have another God. That's an observation that comes to me. But it wasn't until in verse 9 that these men began to react after they identified or Jonah identified for them, I am a Hebrew. That seemed to place him into a category that perhaps made these men, their minds race to particularly the creator dimension of the Hebrew worship. And their reaction after they discovered that he was a Hebrew and that Jonah revealed that he worshipped the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, that these men became terribly afraid. So whoever they worshipped did not necessarily encompass Jonah's God and what Jonah's God stood for as creator. Let me point out something that may not be obvious in the English. In verse 10, When Jonah announces who he is, it says, this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord. In the Hebrew, that's Yahweh. So they knew something about Yahweh. After all, these sailors were based in Joppa, which was not far from Israelite territory. Just on the coast there, the Israelites tended to be in the interior a bit more. But by this time, I think David had conquered the Philistines. So there was a lot of Israelite influence along the coast. So they knew about Yahweh. The Assyrians apparently don't, because there's no mention of Yahweh in chapter 3. The Assyrians are afraid of God, but not specifically Yahweh. So there's a difference in understanding. You have two pagan groups here. 
that are the object, if you will, of evangelism. And they come from a very different place. The sailors having some understanding of Israel's God, the Assyrians apparently not much. And so as God is dealing with these two groups, both of them hear the voice of God, but they hear it in a different tone, something that wouldn't be obvious, perhaps in the English, but we will see that this has significance later on in our study today. Livius? There is an interesting picture that emerges of how these individuals see God, their God, and it comes out in the use of the word fear and afraid. In verse 5, it says, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And then Jonah, he says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. And then you mentioned verse 10 or just the last verse you talked about, they were exceedingly afraid. Just the picture that emerges from this, how Jonah knows his God is not one of afraid as we define afraid. He's in awe of God. So he's not scared about what's happening with the ocean around him as the sailors are. So there's this interesting psychological picture that I see here. I don't know what you think about that, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it is curious that if Jonah was afraid of God, this storm would probably have kept him awake. But he seems to be, in a sense, at peace. It's a bit odd, and your explanation may be as good as any. But I want to point out one more thing in verse 13. After Jonah tells them, here's how you fix the problem. Notice what they do. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. These are not bad people. The Assyrians are the bad guys, okay? These are not bad people. They may be pagans but they have good hearts. They care about divine things, and they care about Jonah, even if he's to blame for their peril. The last thing they want to do is put their hands out and, and take his life, even to appease the gods. So an interesting contrast between the sailors and the Assyrians as this story is told. All right, Terry, and this starts in the last verse of chapter 1, verse 17, and goes to chapter 2, verse 10 which is the entire chapter two. So the story continues after Jonah has told the sailors to throw him into the sea, and after they throw him into the sea, and we'll come back to those verses later. Here's what happens. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then he said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, as my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. A few comments on this. First of all, Jonah's in the fish three days and three nights. Oh, by the way, it's not a whale. Okay, there's a Hebrew word for whale, but this is a big fish, exactly what kind we don't know, but it's a big one. And he's in there three days and three nights before he prays. So maybe a little slow on the uptake, so to speak, but it took him a while to really come to appreciate what God had done here. So after three days, he prays and we get it sink into poetry here. And in this poetry, he describes sinking down into the waves. It's the only poetry in the book. And it's in the midst of all that, he says, I remembered Yahweh. And he remembered that God has hesed, verse 8. Speaking of those who cling to worthless idols, forfeit the grace, the hesed, 
that could be theirs. So he remembers that God is merciful, that God is gracious, and realizes that probably this fish was not an accident. It was God's way of saving him. In verse 9, it says, I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. The future tense is definitely part of the story here, this future tense, because he's saying that from inside the fish. He's planning that when he gets out, if he gets out, he will offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. Now, appeasement theists sacrifice to appease God, sacrifice to please God, sacrifice to change his mind. But Jonah will sacrifice in thanksgiving. Contrast this with the sailors. And let's go back to chapter 1 and verses 14 through 16. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. All right, so there's two sacrifices in this text. The sailors sacrifice Jonah to the God who needs appeasing. And when the sea becomes calm and they realize what has happened, they are now offering a sacrifice of commitment to Yahweh, a sacrifice of gratitude, perhaps suddenly, just as Jonah had done, perhaps around the same time, they now offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and commitment to Yahweh. So notice how many times it says, Lord, Lord, Lord. In the Hebrew, that's very significant. It isn't just God here. The sailors are specifically committing to Yahweh, Israel's God. Uh, you know, how deep that commitment went, we don't know. But in the story, it's very significant that these sailors are converted to Yahweh by their experiences here. So question I have for you, what did Jonah do to convert the sailors? All right, Lou? Well, he told them about his God and that he was running away. And I think it probably gave them a reason to really think about what that meant in his life and how significant, very real right then, his experience with God. All right, Rita? It seems to me that Yahweh allowed the sailors to see him as the same type of God that they worshipped. In other words, a God who punished something that had been done wrong, because it may be is that how Jonah viewed God as well, because Jonah said, throw me into the sea and it will become calm. And I suspect that there would be no other way that the sailors could come to know about Jonah's God, about Yahweh, unless he had allowed something that they were familiar with to happen. All right, Larry. Is it possible that they had a fairly good understanding, at least of some basics about the Hebrew God? And like many of us, there are things that we understand and know that we should do, and we don't until something miraculous happens and we see how powerful things that we could have believed in truly are. And that brings about a change, at least a momentary change, because we have no evidence that they were forever converted into understanding and began to worship the Hebrew God. But their act indicates that the thing that was buried in their mind became real and they understood it to be true. Based on that, they then had a reactive event in their life. Well, one thing to notice here is that we don't have the follow-up, okay? Conversion needs follow-up, and we don't know what happened when they got back to Joppa or anything like that. But within the story, they clearly seem to have some knowledge of Yahweh even beforehand and are very quick to respond when they realize that Yahweh is at work in their lives. I think the answer I would give is that Jonah didn't do anything. Maybe he said a bunch of things that aren't in the story. That's very possible. But within the story, Jonah doesn't do anything. Really, that would merit a conversion. It is the actions of God that make it. I guess the mission point here is that mission is God's work. 
we don't convert anybody. But that doesn't mean our role is unimportant. The fact that we are there can make a difference. And if Jonah had not been there, the sailors would not have ended up sacrificing to Yahweh. But it was God's actions that truly was the converting influence. And I think that's helpful. You know, we sometimes put ourselves the burden of all of God's work in our community or even around the world. And God is only asking us to make disciples wherever we are and leave the converting to him. Sean? I completely agree, John, with those comments. And yet I would like to point out or remind us that Jonah provides one of the clearest stated testimonials that I know of in scripture. When he was asked with respect to mission and our involvement in mission, when he was asked, he says, I am a Hebrew. And then he says, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, the creator. That is a pretty clear, stark testimonial. And I think, however we work this into our duty as mission or our duty in mission, some type of very convictive personal testimony is clearly a part of mission. And it helps the Holy Spirit to follow through then with perhaps a conversion experience. No question that his presence made a difference. Yeah. Aaron. Jonah is definitely the reluctant missionary in this scenario. He's not there to convert them. It's rather forced from him when they ask him, okay, so what's the problem and who's your God? Like you said, mission is God's mission and we're a, a part of it, but it's not up to us to be the Holy Spirit, to be God in the accomplishment of it, but rather God is doing his mission and he can work through us even with all of our problems if we give him permission to and allow him to. Jonah was in a position as a quote-unquote prophet, even though he's not the greatest example. He was a avenue, I guess you could say, in this story for God to work. And so that's kind of a hopeful thought for me, like giving God permission to reach others through my life in spite of me and giving God permission to work in my life to make me more of the willing missionary along the way. All right. Thank you. Livius? So I think that Jonah did something. And while it was really small, he didn't do a whole lot. It was really significant. And as Sean mentioned, he identifies himself. He identifies his God. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And maybe in the way he carried himself, as I mentioned, the use of the word afraid, he was sleeping through all this turmoil, the seas, that also maybe communicated how Jonah related to the God who made the sea. And that's all he did. He simply identified himself identified the God that he worshiped. And I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 3, 6, where Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And certainly God did give the growth here. Mm -hmm. All right, let's go to number three in the handout, where it says, read Jonah 3, 1 to 3. Why don't we do that? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. All right, so notice the difference between chapter 3 and chapter 1. In chapter 1, God says, go to Nineveh, and he goes the opposite direction. In chapter 3, God says, go to Nineveh, and he obeys. So what changed Jonah's unwillingness into willingness, do you think? Henry? If I put myself in the sandals of Jonah, and knowing that I have done similar things in my life, I will say that, that, wasn't, that Jonah was changed. Jonah didn't have any other option. He was just rescued from the ocean in a very unusual way, and he's spitting there. What else can he do, right? You feel forced sometimes. You are not leaving me room, God. I actually tried to go to Tarsus, and you didn't let me. Well, and again, God needs to remind him again. I cannot even believe that Jonah has been just pat out of the fish, and he needs to be told, wake up, Go 
to where you were supposed to be. So I have done it multiple times. I have refused multiple times and coming up with excuses. Oh, this is what you want me to do, Lord, when I already knew it. So I don't think he was ever converted. He just didn't have any other option. <laughs> okay. Livius, isn't Jonah a prophet? And don't prophets speak for God? And so here it was three days in the belly of a fish. And then the third day he has this prayer. And at the end he says, what I have vowed, I will pay. So he's just like, hey, I promise to speak for you. And I realize that being in the belly of the fish here, you know, I'm not really living up to my vow. So let me just go and do this thing you want me to do. Mm -hmm. All right. Ashley? Yeah, I think a little uh, healthy humbling helped a bit. I think we may have a tendency of humans to think that we're capable of being independent and in control of our situation. And we maybe a little short-term memory sometimes and forget how dependent we are and how fragile we really are. So I'm sure, yeah, being in the belly of the fish and uh, really, I think, helped maybe Jonah just put things back into perspective and helped remind him of what really is running life, like how God really is in control. And yeah, I think maybe even himself going through that he maybe even though it was probably miserable i would think <laughs> that it also reminds him that he probably can trust god to do like amazing things and that he does have that power with god on his side so yeah i don't know yeah i think you're heading in the right direction here i would point out a couple of things in chapter two because chapter two is the transition we see one jonah in chapter one we see another jonah in chapter three and the thing that happened in between was the prayer of chapter 2. And so you notice in verses 6 and 7, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. So at that point, Jonah's convinced this is it. I've had no air for the last minute, and I'm far enough from the surface. I'm done. Okay. Death is closing over me, and I'm not getting out of here. But, he says, you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. So Jonah realizes that his situation was fatal, apart from God's dramatic intervention. So it was a problem too big for anyone to fix except God. And so he's reminded of the tremendous power of God. And God not only brought the fish, but later on had the fish beach itself and cough him up on the beach. I can imagine what he looked like when he came out of there. If you were walking along the beach and you saw a guy whose hair was bleached white and he's got seaweed hanging down and his clothes are half eaten up by stomach acids and his face was bleached white and he points the finger and says, repent, I think we'd repent. There's uh, something, <laughs> a little sense of humor on, on God's part, perhaps, in preparing him for this task. But it's the power of God reminding Jonah that God is in control. He's not only in control of the sea, he's in control of the sailors. And that means he's also in control of the Assyrians. And if God sends you to Assyria, nothing's going to happen to you there unless God specifically allows it for his purposes. So Jonah doesn't need to control the situation. So I think the power of God is one piece of it. But also in chapter 2, in verse 8, he says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Jonah's remembering also the graciousness of God, the hesed of God, which is often translated steadfast love. God's loving kindness are two ways of translating that term. So it's the power of God and the goodness of God together that bring about a change, I think, in Jonah's life. So, and that, of course, if you go to the Pine Null website, that is exactly what the website says, that God is infinitely powerful and equally gracious. And it's that combination that has tremendous implications for the decisions we make in life. Dan. The thing that I'm getting out of this is how resourceful God is. When I hear that he's got a thousand ways to solve a problem, when I can only think of two or three, I think this is a perfect example of how God can communicate 
in the most unusual ways in order to convince a person of a fact, and that is that he can take care of a person in spite of the surroundings. This is about his most unusual way, and yet I think it was very personalized in a way that Jonah could understand and that it would affect Jonah. I think he would have communicated probably the same thing, the assurance that he would be with him in a different way for you or to ask us to do something. So again, amazed how flexible God is and how resourceful he is, and in some ways, how he can take these serious situations and even create a certain amount of humor within that host. Now, something I had never noticed in Jonah before uh, this week, and that is that the reason Jonah doesn't go to Assyria, not that he's afraid of the Assyrians, maybe he was, he had reason to be, but when he describes to God the reason he ran away, he says, because I know you're hesed. I know your kindness. I know your goodness. I know your love. And you're going to use me to do something good for those Assyrians. I don't like that. What really struck me this time is chapter 2, verse 8, where Jonah basically says the essence of people who cling to worthless idols is forfeiting God's hesed, God's graciousness. In other words, Jonah comes to realize in the belly of the fish that God's grace is a good thing, not a negative thing, as he had interpreted it in the past. And as he fully embraces the grace of God, he becomes maybe a little more willing to go and offer the Assyrians a chance. God is full of grace, so we don't need to be afraid. But God is equally powerful. Henry. I have a technical question for you. Maybe it is on the original language there, but Verse 8 seems to me like he is contrasting the pagans that for faith God's grace, comparing it with him. That's why verse 9, at least in English, begins with but. It doesn't seem to me like he is recognizing that, but he is feeling superior because of the way that verse 9 begins with the but I. Those are that way, but I am a different way. Is that in the original language, that contrasting clause? Oh, yes. The contrast is very strong there. That's a sound observation. And you may well be right in terms of the psychology of Jonah as he's praying this prayer. And imagine what it's like for God to listen to our prayers, knowing the psychological motivations behind them sometimes. But the point that I was noticing is Jonah coming to realize that idolatry is more than just you know a bad thing, but it's actually forfeiting God's goodness. It's a rejection of God's goodness. And in a sense, that's what Jonah did when he ran away. So to that degree, at least, I think Jonah is beginning to change his mind, is beginning to see a different picture of God than the one that he had before, which was on the right track, but perhaps not as committed that that was the distinction between you know the pagans and the true Israelites was the character of God and how they understood it. Now, what's the difference between the response of the Assyrians and the response of the sailors in chapter 1, 14 through 16? So, Terry, if you would read verses 4 and 5. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. All right. Notice the difference between the Assyrians and the sailors. The Assyrians believe God. The sailors sacrifice to Yahweh. So it seems that the sailors came away with a deeper understanding of God and his character than the Assyrians do. The Assyrians speak of God rather than Yahweh. And it makes me think here, God didn't confront the Assyrians, with the full truth about himself. God accepts their turnaround at the level that they are capable of. Reminds me of John 16, 12, where Jesus says, I have many things to tell you, but you can't handle it now. So you have two sets of pagans here, pagans with quite a bit of knowledge of Yahweh and pagans with no knowledge of Yahweh, but just recognizing that somebody bigger than them is engaging them at this point. And I think it's texts like this 
that have led to a shift in Adventist mission as one example of mission. Historically, Adventists went to the world on their terms. In other words, we share the message God has given us, and we don't deviate from one land to another. We just give the message, and those who listen, great. Those who don't, their problem. You know? And I think more recently, Adventist mission has come to realize that there's not much response from most of the world, that Adventism tends to be a very insulated minority in many, many cultures. I think I mentioned in one of the earlier sessions in one part of Eastern Africa, where all the Seventh-day Adventists are from another part of the country, not one baptized out of the 40 tribes or so that inhabit uh, the coastal region of that country. That's a rather stunning statistic. You might say 11,000 Adventists doing well in that district, but nobody is connecting with the people who actually live there. So Adventist mission has come to realize that we can't simply give the same message everywhere we go. We need to meet people where they are. We need to tailor the message within their context. And some of those contexts may require an Old Testament different from the one in the Bible. An Old Testament meaning what that culture and what that people understands about God. And ask the question, what was the Holy Spirit doing here before we got here? Uh, to give the message. In other words, connect the message of Scripture with the world and the understanding of uh, the people where we are. Let's read verses 6 through 9. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. No human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. All right, once again, we've had the saying often in this class, you become like the God you worship. Well, the Assyrian gods were really brutal, and the Assyrians were like that. From in that context, however, the Assyrians are coming to recognize that God may be reachable, that God might possibly be different than what they had thought. And so they're going to take a chance and see if there's some compassion in this fierce and angry God. Once again, there's no mention of Yahweh here. It is simply a mention of God. Normally, when pagans refer to Yahweh in the Bible, they use the term Most High God. And Nebuchadnezzar does that. Uh, you have that in relation to Melchizedek in Genesis 14, etc. Here, the Assyrians respond in a pretty generic fashion. It does not seem that they have a clear understanding of Yahweh and Israel's God. Uh, this reminds me of something missiologists call the Engel scale. There's a man whose last name is Engel who created it. And the idea of the Engel scale is that the zero point in the scale is the point of baptism or conversion. And there's minuses up to, say, minus 10, uh, further and further distance from any knowledge of God. You know, a minus 10 is no knowledge of God whatsoever. A minus one would be an extensive knowledge of God, but have not yet committed to him. Plus one through plus 10 would be uh, growth in understanding of God, growth in faith, growth in discipleship, etc. So you have this scale, and what's helpful in the angle scale is every person you meet is somewhere on that scale. Now, we tend to think of mission or evangelism as the moment when people are baptized the moment when people are converted, that that zero point is the whole focus. But the reality is every person, whether they're positive toward God or not, is somewhere on that scale. And meeting them where they are means if somebody's at minus eight, your mission is to move them to minus seven, not minus one or plus one, because that's probably in most circumstances not even conceivable at that point. But if you think about us, every one of us has a story. 
where at some point we were further from God than where we are today. And somebody met us at the point where we were and took us a small step in the right direction. And someone else took us another step. And an accumulation of those kind of influences eventuated in a commitment to Christ in many, many cases. So I find that to be a very helpful thing. One of the things that bothered me sometimes when I was a young pastor is people would say after, oh, I'm so glad to have these studies with you. I'm a much better Catholic than I was before. I'm a much better Baptist. I'm a much better Muslim than I was before because of you. And I used to be irritated about that because I wanted them to become more than that. you know. And now I'm coming to realize that these are stages along the way. And what we see in Jonah is God addressing two very different types of pagan. And God is accepting their step from minus one thing to minus another, as if it were the whole ball of wax. And that is very encouraging to me. First of all, because every encounter in this life is an opportunity, an opportunity for mission. And every encounter in this life can be successful, even though you never see it, even though you don't know that anything has happened. It can be successful. So we don't have to worry about the success. We don't have to worry about the numbers. Numbers are great when they happen. But we don't have to worry about that because the Holy Spirit was working with that person before we met them, already moving them in the right direction. Our mission at that point is help them to take one more step in that direction. Livius. With respect to God meeting people where they are, didn't the Ninevites worship Dagon, the fish god? And I heard this explained that they see this guy popping up out of the mouth of a fish. And so it just gives him some credibility. And whether this is true or not, it would be interesting how with this idea of God meeting people where they were, like he uses their knowledge of their gods to communicate to them. It doesn't say it here, but you kind of have to make an assumption. But it's just interesting how God does that. Well, Dagon was the god of the Philistines, the fish god. And that makes sense because they originally came from Crete, and then they moved to the coast of Israel. So they were a seafaring people from a long way back. I'm somewhat familiar with the Babylonian religion. I'm less familiar with the Assyrian, so I can't fully answer your question in that regard. But the Assyrians seem to be the cruelest of the ancient peoples, and I would be surprised if their god was not similar to that. Alyssa? How do you spell the name of that scale? Is it Engel scale? Engel is E-N-G-E-L. And I found it in a book called, I think it was title was Contemporary Christian Communication by James Engel. And I modified the scale just a little bit for convenience, but the general idea was certainly his long before I ever thought of it. All right, let's go to number four, because we go from chapter three to chapter four. And the chapter three is the conversion of the Assyrians. Chapter two was the conversion of Jonah. (laughs) Chapter one was the conversion of the sailors. And chapter four, God and Jonah are at it again. So I love the way this book is laid out in pretty much equal bites. It's doing some fun things here. Jonah chapter four. Let's read the whole chapter for starters, and then talk about it a little bit. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, 
God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, Yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush, for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Darla. This is why I think this story is so pivotal in understanding the nature of God and God's goodness, because it wasn't good news to Jonah that God was gracious and kind and loving. He wanted vengeance. This is why vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I look at his vengeance as redemptive. Our vengeance is I want to get even. And I thought about this as far as asking a Jew to go and witness to Germany. I mean, I think this is kind of what The Assyrians were so cruel and so horrible, and Jonah couldn't get it that God would be merciful to these people. So to me, some people don't like this view of God. Mm -hmm. It's too kind and gracious, and I want these people to pay for what they did. So I, I just think it's interesting that this story seems so pivotal to me about are you really like the God you worship? You say God is a loving, benevolent God. Is this who you want to become? It's just fascinating to me. Yeah, if you ever run into somebody that believes in the good cop, bad cop view of God, the Old Testament God is this severe, punishing, judgmental, unforgiving figure, and then the New Testament God, Jesus, is the exact opposite, etc. Encourage him to read Jonah, because the whole point of Jonah is the point of Jesus' mission. God knows we learn better from stories than from instruction. And so he gives a big story, and there's a story within the story, the story of the plant that God provides and then strikes down as uh, a teaching for Jonah's sake. And so we find it fascinating. Jonah is furious, and as some have pointed out, his hatred for the Assyrians but also the sense that God is sort of out of control. His goodness means we can't predict what's going to happen. And I'm going to look like a false prophet. I mean, I said to everybody, 40 days and boom, and no boom. That makes me look silly. So Jonah is really, really upset with God, but God keeps reaching him with questions and with an illustration of the plant. Rusty. So as Darla was sharing that, it reminded me of Jesus in Nazareth when he left out the part about the day of vengeance of our God and just connected that to where that's really how they viewed things is not about their own salvation, but in a sense, the vengeance on their enemies. Verse 10 and 11 again, the Lord said, this is Yahweh again. He's always Yahweh when he's talking to Jonah, (laughs) you see, but to the Assyrians, he's God. That's a subtle little point, but something I think significant to the story. You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This is, I think, kind of unique within the Old Testament, an expression of compassion of God directly aimed at the worst of the worst. The Assyrians were bullies. The Assyrians were abusers. The Assyrians were killers. Whether it's the Holocaust or the Ukraine war or wherever you want to take it, think of the human nation or power that has most misused its power. The Assyrians were that power. And God here, it's totally shocking within the Old Testament. God here is expressing compassion for the neighborhood bully the neighborhood abuser, the neighborhood killer. And that, as someone has already mentioned, is very disturbing to those of us that haven't done those kinds of things and have been very stressed about them in the course of our life. I see that this question has stirred up quite a bit, and I appreciate that. But we are about five minutes from the end, so I'd encourage each of you to be brief, and then we'll need to draw this to a close. John Robson, first of all. 
to me, one of the most significant points in the book of Jonah is that the only person that doesn't move towards God in a real sense is Jonah himself. Mm. And the book ends with Jonah still sitting wherever he is next to Nineveh. It doesn't tell you that he went back to home, indicating that he moved towards God. He's still sitting there in the wilderness, mourning that God is not the type of God that he wants him to be. Interesting. Excellent point. Henry? I would like to push your comments a little bit more. I think that sometimes we Christians think that we are not the worst of the world, but sometimes without even killing, shedding blood, we have let majority of the people that doesn't believe like us outside of the opportunity to be reached by God. And I think that we can probably be above the Assyrians that did not know him, that sometimes we claim to know him and we make him even look worse. Yes, and that makes a very powerful point to whom much is given, much is required. And so we compare the best of ourselves with the worst of someone else's religion, country, race, whatever. And it props up our fragile uh, self-worth, but it isn't necessarily reality. Larry. Your comment about the Syrians being bullies and the kind of people they were brings to mind that the people who need love the most are those who at the very moment are exhibiting the least amount of loveliness of their own character. And so based upon that, the Syrians were the people who at that moment needed God, desperately needed him because of how they were responding. A bully is that way because of injury in their own life and love that they've not yet been able to understand. Excellent point. Bob? It's interesting to me that the Assyrians responded maybe in a more positive way than the original Egyptians when Moses was talking with them. That's surprising. The other thing, I've run into my work into people who call themselves Assyrian, and they're Eastern Christian. And I have no idea how the connection works there. That would be a long discussion, so I'll stop with that. I know one of those. He actually taught with me at the seminary at Andrews University. His name was Joe Kidder, and he came from Mosul, which is the Iraqi term for Nineveh. So, and they, Assyrians are the Christian Arabs of northern Iraq. And they take that term because it's an ancient term for them. It's a territorial term at that point. So, yeah, nice bringing that in here, connection with today. Rita, you have the last word. I think the thing is that, yes, the Israelites hated the Assyrians, but if they were powerful enough, they would have wanted to be like them. And I think this is what the story is about. You want to be like the Assyrians, but no, that's not how I am. Well, to draw this to a close, let me mention that Nineveh was one of the first megacities in the world, and God cared deeply about it. When I was small, there were three megacities in the world, New York, London, and Tokyo, and I grew up in one of those. All three had about 8 million people each. Today, there are 48 cities in the world with more than 8 million people in them. Some of them are names you've never heard of, like Chengdu. What God's compassion for Nineveh is a model for today's world. And it suggests to me that whoever you are listening to this recording, wherever you are, you're needed. As we said, it's God that does the converting, but it makes a difference when you and I are there. I think the message here, there are many excuses one could make for mission, and they're good excuses. You know, I have a wife and kids. I'm too old. I'm too young. I need to finish my education. They'll laugh at me. They'll torture me. I have the wrong personality for that. I just don't like them. Or it'll cost too much. I mean, these are all reasonable excuses, legitimate excuses. But I think the message of today's lesson is that wherever you are, you're needed. And if we're willing to sense the call of God and follow it, amazing things can happen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this message, which could have been a shaming and discouraging message. But instead, we see some of ourselves in Jonah. We see some of ourselves in those sailors, some of ourselves in even the Assyrians. 
And we realize that this message is a call of God to all of us to be open to your leading wherever we may be and whoever we live among. I pray that you would be with us in the week to come. May we begin to see a few sailors and Assyrians in our midst that are just hungry for a friend or a positive word. And I pray that you would help us to understand each one is at a stage in a journey and that our presence can make a difference even if we don't know that we did. We thank you for these messages. We thank you for your tremendous grace, which if we don't extend it to others, we have difficulty extending it to ourselves as well. I pray you'd make us more forgiving, more understanding, more gracious, because we want to be more and more like you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.